Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. There was a storm coming on the house of Israel in the first century, a storm that would test the faith of Israel and of every individual in her. That storm, as Jesus would later prophesy, will culminate in Jerusalem being destroyed and the temple pulled to the ground. In preparing his disciples, Jesus explains that while houses of wood and stone may collapse for various reasons, houses of human life collapse for only one reason, because the foundation gave way. And the foundation, Jesus tells us, is always a matter of faith. What is your ultimate authority? What is your ultimate source of freedom, peace, and prosperity? And what do you trust to stand up in the storms of life and deliver you? Every individual answers these questions, and so does every nation. And while the answers may vary widely, it ultimately comes down to only two, Jesus and anything else. When the storms of life come, and they will, the only people and the only nations who stand over the long haul are those built on the foundation of Christ and His Word. Jesus told His disciples point-blank that Israel as a nation was going to collapse under the coming storm. Their job, regardless, was to lay a new foundation of obedience to Christ and His Word. That was paramount for Christ's disciples in first-century Israel, and it is equally paramount for His disciples in 21st-century America. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. We come this morning to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. These are the last of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's consider them, for this is the very Word of God. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Lord God, we pray now that you would open your word to us afresh by the Holy Spirit, that we too would be your true disciples, that we would live for you in the time in which you have called us to live, that we would be your faithful ones who build on the rock of obedience to your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount with four warnings, of which our text today is the final. All four are connected, and they build on one another. He first warned his disciples to enter the narrow gate, not the wide gate where all the first century throngs were going. Second, he warned them to beware of false prophets who would pervert the gospel and lead away from Christ. 
And he warned them to judge prophets the same way you judge disciples, the same way you judge the true people of God, and that is by their fruit. Thirdly, he warned his disciples that in the chaos and confusion of the first century, many would come up with their own criteria for entering the kingdom. Many would think it sufficient to just believe Jesus, a great prophet, a great example, a great teacher. And they would be shocked when they were carried away in judgment. For only those who know and are known by the Lord Jesus Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven. And all three of those warnings culminates in Jesus' final warnings and his conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. He warns his disciples that a storm is coming, and it is going to test the foundation of every life and of the life of Israel herself, and only those whose lives are built on the foundation of obedience to Jesus' words will survive. Now, Jesus' words have obvious applications to individuals, for Jesus expressly mentions here the wise man who builds his house on the rock and the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And as modern evangelicals, we get that. But what we don't get, what we have lost sight of, is the corporate application of Jesus' words to Israel in the first century and to every nation since. Every Jew in Jesus' audience would immediately know that when Jesus spoke of a great fall, of a great house, He was talking about the house of Israel, which is one of the most common ways that God referred to his people in the Old Testament. Now, as moderns, we tend to think in either-or categories. And so we we also tend to be individualistic. So we immediately assume, if it's not specified, that Jesus is talking to individuals. And if it's brought out that he is speaking uh, to nations or to a corporate-type context, then we want to know which it is. We want to know whether he's talking about individuals or whether he's talking about nations. Now, the Jews of the first century were accustomed to thinking in much more biblical categories, which was much more of a both-and way of thinking. So they knew that Jesus was talking about both. You can't have omelets without eggs. You can't talk about omelets without talking about eggs, and the Jews got that. That is something we need to recover. If you have bad eggs, you have a bad omelet. And there's no way to make the omelet good without first making the eggs good. And the same thing is true of nations and citizens. If you have bad citizens, you have a bad nation. If you have weak citizens, you have a weak nation. If you have ignorant citizens, you have an ignorant nation, and there is no way to have national revival, repentance, and reformation without having individual revival, repentance, and reformation. That was true for first century Israel, and that is true for 21st century America and for every other nation. In fact, we in America share a lot in common with first century Israel. Now let me say right off the bat that I'm not suggesting that Americans are the lost tribes of Israel or that America is in some exclusive way God's nation. 
and certainly not that America is in some ethnic way God's nation. Because with the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, with the receiving of Jesus of all power and authority in heaven and on earth, and with Jesus' calling for all the nations to become his disciples, which is exactly what the Great Commission is all about, every nation is called to be God's nation. Every nation is called to be God's city on a hill and God's light to the world. Every nation is called to be exceptional in that sense. It is a humble exceptionalism because it is an exceptionalism that is only by the grace and the blessing of God. It says in Psalm 33, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Every nation is called to be that nation. Now what America shares with Israel, though, is that she was settled with those purposes in mind. Our pilgrim and Puritan forefathers and foremothers who sailed to these shores had all of those purposes expressly in view. As a result, we, like first century Israel, have a rich spiritual heritage and a history of rich spiritual blessing, which has shown itself in tremendous liberty, tremendous prosperity, and at least in an earlier day, some goodness. Now, our goodness was never unalloyed, but that's the way it is in a fallen world, isn't it? God's blessing always greatly exceeds our goodness and our faithfulness. God works a little goodness into us. God works a little faithfulness into us, and then he gives us a lot of blessing. That's the way God rolls. Now, America also shares with first century Israel the fact that she is bent on explaining away and turning away from the God who has been so good to her. And God has been very patient and has extended his blessings far past our faithfulness, even as he had done with first century Israel. So Jesus' warning to first century Israel has general application, not only to all individuals, but to all nations since. But it has a particularly pointed application to 21st century America. So let's give careful heed to Jesus' words. The first thing we need to see is that faith is always foundational, both to individuals and to nations. The foundation is always a matter of who or what is your ultimate authority, who or what is your ultimate source of liberty, peace, and prosperity, and who or what do you trust to stand up and deliver you in the storms of life. And while the different answers to those questions are limitless, Jesus says it really boils down to only two. Jesus and everything else. Jesus and anything else. Over time, the only foundation that will hold up for individuals and for nations is Christ and His Word. Every other foundation amounts to sand and is going to give way eventually. Now what this means for America is, first of all, 
the foundation of America is not the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. Let me say that again. The foundation of America is not the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. The foundation of America is the faith that produced the culture, that produced the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. The French writer Alexis de Tocqueville, who traveled America in the 1830s and wrote his famous Democracy in America, said that in America, religion, that is Christianity, is the road to knowledge and the observance of the divine law leads men to civil freedom. He made those observations not only based on what he saw in America in the 1830s, but what he read about America two centuries before in the early charter documents and constitutional documents of the early colonies. Now here's the broader point. Every governmental document is the product of a particular culture. It reflects a common set of values and viewpoints which the people generally take for granted, but without which a culture is not a culture. And every culture is the product of a particular faith, a common set of convictions about those questions I've already mentioned. Who or what is the ultimate authority? Who or what is the ultimate source of liberty, peace, and prosperity? Who or what do you trust to stand up and deliver you in the storms of life? And behind those convictions are convictions to deeper questions still. The three ultimate questions of life. Where did we come from? Why is there evil in the world? And what can deliver us from evil? Every person who has ever lived has answered those three questions. Maybe not consciously, maybe not expressly, but they have answered them nonetheless, and their answers have determined the course of their life. And of course, the Christian answers to those are that we came from God. We are made in the image of God which means not only that we reflect certain capacities of God, but supremely that we were created to fellowship with God, to live face to face with God, to live quorum Deo, before the face of God, and to reflect Him, to reflect that fellowship, to reflect His character. And that's one of the big themes of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that we're to be like our Father in heaven. Why is there evil in the world? Well, the Christian answer is because we turned away from the God who made us so graciously and lovingly in his own image. We turned away from that. And what can deliver us from evil? The Christian answer is Jesus Christ alone. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling us here. Building your life, building your church life, building your family life, building the life of your business, building the life of your community, building the life of a culture, a society, of a nation, on anything other that honoring Christ as Lord and obeying His Word is building on nothing, and the storms of life will reveal it to be so. Now I said, the real foundation of any nation is not the Constitution or other governmental documents, but the faith that produced the culture that produced those governmental documents. And this is why America in the 21st century and in the 20th century has been so unsuccessful 
at her attempts to fundamentally change other countries by changing their governmental documents. You see, our American constitutional software won't run on their cultural hard drive because it is the product of a different faith operating system. And that is the first thing we need to see. Faith is always foundational. The next thing we need to see is that when a country collapses or when an individual life collapses or falls apart, it's always for one reason, because the foundation gave way. And that, too, gets back to faith. Because of the connection between faith, culture, constitutions, and governmental documents, when the faith erodes, the culture will erode, and when the culture erodes, the Constitution will erode. Now, I don't mean that the Constitution will be replaced, but the Constitution will always be interpreted in accordance with the prevailing culture of the day. The history of our country's Supreme Court jurisprudence is a study in just how true that is. I challenge you to read the Supreme Court opinions uh, representative during the history of our country and ask yourself, just look, how can the same Constitution produce such differing interpretations? Indeed, how can the same Constitution produce such differing visions of society? Well, the short answer is it can't. But in a fallen world, it will always be interpreted over the long haul in accordance with the prevailing culture. Now, all of this was just as true with ancient Israel. Don't forget that the faith of Abraham was around for 400 years before the law of Moses, which was Israel's constitutional charter. Now, the law was God's document. But my point is that even the law of God presupposed a particular faith, a particular relationship with God, a particular trust in, love for, and submission to God, and a particular respect and love for one's neighbor. And whenever that faith eroded in Israel's history, then Israel's culture eroded, and the law ended up being twisted and perverted to suit the cultural changes. And that is exactly why Jesus lambasted the scribes and the Pharisees, so-called conservatives of the day, because they were twisting and perverting God's law. But in all of his lambasting, Jesus made it clear that what was missing at base was the faith and the heart for God that the law presupposed. Now, if that is true with God's own law, how much more is it true with the U.S. Constitution and every other governmental document in every other nation in history? Now, it is in this context, a context very much like ours, that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples in a country that had a great heritage, a country in which his disciples could look back to a glorious heritage and a glorious history in the past in many senses. And yet, 
that foundation had eroded because its faith had eroded. And he is telling his disciples to build their lives on the foundation of obedience to his word. And as we have seen, every single thing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount was something that God had already said in the law. Jesus was not giving a new law in the Sermon on the Mount. He was chiseling off the barnacles that the scribes and Pharisees and the traditions of the elders had put all over the law to obscure it. Now, when Jesus spoke to his disciples, in this culture in which the foundation had been eviscerated, he specifically told them that nationally speaking, their reform efforts were not going to do any good. He specifically told them, as the prophet of God, that all this was going to culminate nationally within a single generation with Jerusalem being destroyed and the temple being pulled down so that there wasn't so much as one stone left on another. And nevertheless, with such dark news, Jesus told his disciples, start pouring concrete. He gives us the answer to the age-old question, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Jesus says, start pouring. You build a new foundation and you build it on obedience to my word. That's even in the context where Jesus is telling them that in terms of the big picture of their nation, things are not only going to get worse before they get better, the nation is going to go. But he says to them, you start laying a new foundation. Start pouring concrete. And that is not something his disciples can do in Jerusalem. For they don't control Jerusalem. They're completely on the outs in Jerusalem. You have in Jerusalem, you have the party of the high priests, you have the Sadducees, you've got the secularists, you've got the liberals... You've also got the conservatives, you've got the scribes and the Pharisees, but none of them represent a true new foundation based on Jesus and his word. So pouring concrete is something these ex-fishermen and others can only do at the individual level, at the family level, at the local church level, perhaps at the local community level, if uh, God grants... uh, the conversion of enough people so that you have enough churches involved. But that is it. When it comes to other social issues of the day, other political issues of the day, the disciples can work together with others who don't share their faith. But when it comes to this all-important task of laying a new foundation, it is something only the disciples of Jesus can do. So it's not going to do any good to get elected to Jerusalem so that they can, quote, change the culture. Because Jesus tells them they're not. They have to pour concrete at the individual, family, local church level, and it's something only they can do. Helping to fix political problems, economic problems, national security problems, foreign relation problems... All of those are things which they can do in cooperation with others who don't share their faith, but all of that is tantamount to fixing the roof so that it doesn't rain on the kids, which is not a bad idea. But don't be deceived 
that fixing the roof is really going to do anything when you've got huge cracks running through the foundation. As long as the foundation is destroyed, you're going to have no end to problems with the roof, the drywall, the lighting, the plumbing, and everything else. So the fundamental task at hand, the fundamental task that only Jesus' disciples can do, and they can only do starting with their individual, family, and local church level, is to pour concrete. Now, it may seem like a hopeless situation, but Jesus' word to those disciples is start pouring. Like the word given to the widow in the Old Testament who had only a jar of oil left. The prophet of God says, start pouring. But she says, but this is all I have left. I have nothing left. I have nothing to feed my son with. This is all I have. And the prophet says, start pouring. And that is Jesus' word to his disciples as well. Now, unlike the disciples in the first century, we don't know how things are going to turn out in our own culture, in our own culture, in our own, our own country. Jesus may grant a great revival and reformation in America. And if he does, we will be starting the foundation for that. But even if Jesus doesn't, we are laying the foundation for the future one way or another. We don't know exactly what Jesus will do with it. That's his business. But we know that he's going to do something good with it. We know that somehow, if we heed his words, he will make it connect up with the advancement of his kingdom and the blessing and salvation of the world. Now, the final thing we need to see in Jesus' words this morning is that Jesus is Lord of the storm. In this parable, it is only the storm that reveals the house with the good foundation from the house with the bad foundation. When the weather is great and sunny and the wind isn't blowing and the storm isn't beating, both houses can seem just fine. And that is the whole secular myth. That's the whole secular delusion under which we are living here today. Everything seems fine when the weather is great. But when the storm comes, that's when the house built on sand gives way and is carried away in judgment. And what we need to see is that Jesus is the one sending the storm. And he is doing so to advance his saving purposes now, what this means is Jesus is in the house building business. He's in the business of building houses. But Jesus is also in the house demolition business. He's in the business of tearing down houses. Jesus wants some houses to stand and he wants others to fall. And ultimately, Jesus wants every house, every nation, every institution, every individual that refuses to be built on the foundation of obedience to his word to fall. Now, when we look at that, especially as modern evangelicals, that seems to us to be a bit harsh. It seems to us that Jesus must enjoy messing with people. No, Jesus doesn't enjoy messing with people. Jesus enjoys saving people. 
And a big part of saving people and saving nations is showing them that their lives are built on sand and that the things they're trusting in are phonies. Whether they're trusting in uh, some normal deity or whether they're trusting in themselves. Even as ancient Rome came increasingly to trust in the genius of Rome embodied by the emperor, so modern America increasingly has come to trust in the genius of America. And Jesus is going to show us that the genius of America is a phony. It's a false god that cannot deliver and cannot bless. That's not where America's peace and prosperity came from. Is it kind? Is it loving to allow someone who is living a delusion, trusting in something, trusting in a Savior who can never save, in a deliverer who can never deliver, to continue on in that self-deception? No, it's not. And that's exactly why Jesus is Lord of the storm. That's why he sends the storm. If Jesus is not Lord of the storm, then he cannot save from the storm. And that is his purpose, to save. So what shall we do with this specifically? Well, the application is obvious, for Jesus says everything that's not built on obedience to his word is built on sand. First of all, everything you touch, everything you influence, and certainly everything you control, bring it to the utmost extent you can into glad obedience to Jesus and to his word. Everything you touch, everything you influence, everything you control, bring it to the utmost extent you can into glad obedience to Jesus and his word. Any obedience that is not glad is not obedience. Secondly, pray. Pray for blessing. Uh, We don't know what Jesus holds for our country, but even to those Jews who were sent off into captivity to hated Babylon, they were told, seek the peace of the city where you dwell. And so we should seek the peace and the blessing of our country. We should seek to have our country, to have Jesus grant revival, to grant repentance, and to grant reformation. Because honestly, apart from a huge, massive revival, And this is getting back to eggs and omelets. A huge, massive revival where we see tens of millions of Americans of all ethnic stripes, of all economic strata, turning to Christ completely. Apart from that, um, I mean, our country is built on sand at this point, and it's it's going to ultimately give way in the storm. That is the only hope for our country. I'm not saying Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. I'm not saying they shouldn't be involved in the culture war. I'm saying they should. But I'm saying at the time to understand that when you're involved in those things, you're patching the roof. You're fixing the drywall, which I'm all in favor for. And you can work with others to do that. But understand our unique task, the task that only we as Jesus' disciples can do, is to pour concrete. And we can't do it in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., as much as it beats its chest, is downstream culturally. It reflects culture. It does not produce it. So pray for blessing. Pray for revival. Pray for repentance. Pray for reformation. Third, share these truths 
with other Christians and even with non-Christians as they may provide a good avenue of witness. We have many Christians in our day who are very, very concerned for their country, but they're not necessarily connecting these concerns expressly with the Christian faith or the words of Jesus in the way that they should. You know, it says in Psalm 96, some very popular words in the evangelical church, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That's a very popular phrase in evangelicalism. But we never read the next verse. The next verse. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That's not in the top ten of evangelical truths. Say among the nations. It doesn't say whisper quietly among other believers that the Lord reigns. It says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. In other words, Jesus is Lord of the storm. Say among the nations that every house that is not built on Christ's word is going to end up falling. Now, this is a message that we need to speak within the church because every revival, every reformation always begins with God's people. That's where it starts. And so we need to speak it there. But we may also have opportunity to share this truth with non-Christians. You find many non-Christians today who have some sense of a heritage in America and want to see a turning back to what they may just call traditional values and those kind of things. They're very, very concerned for their country. And many times we may have opportunity to plant the thought that this stuff just didn't come out of thin air. You know, as Alexis de Tocqueville noted, this came from a Christian faith. And it, gives, it can give us opportunity to begin to share, you know, a constitution doesn't hang in thin air. It comes from somewhere. It comes from a certain, it comes from a certain culture. And cultures don't hang in thin air. They come from somewhere too. They come from a particular faith. And ours came from faith in Christ. In fact, it came from a very conscientious and express effort by our forefathers and foremothers in the faith to begin from the ground up building their lives, their families, their churches, and, in, and their civil communities on Christ and His Word. So take these three things forward. Give them prayerful thought and application in your lives, all to the glory of the reigning Lord, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.